Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, in our first segment, we'll take a look at the latest long-term budget outlook released by the Congressional Budget Office. It's got some pretty alarming numbers for the national debt and the budget and our economy over the next 30 years. Tory Gorman joins me for that segment. And then later in the program, we'll revisit a a recent conversation we had with Greg Bertelson, CEO of the Bipartisan Climate Leadership Council. Bertelson will uh, talk about growing bipartisan support for so-called border carbon adjustments. These are import fees that can be levied on uh, foreign-made products whose production is deemed carbon intensive. It's an effort to use market pressure to reduce global emissions and level the playing field for American manufacturers. For now, though, let's focus on CBO's latest long-term budget outlook. Uh, It's really showing some cracks in our fiscal foundation. The CBO outlook projects that we'll continue to see the growth of our senior population, declining birth rates, and higher healthcare costs. These continuing trends are some of the key factors behind CBO's projection that the debt will nearly double from the level it is today as a percentage of the gross domestic product or GDP. It's about 100% today. That's pretty scary uh, because that means that by 2053, within 30 years, the debt to GDP ratio will be nearly twice uh, what it is today or close to 200% of GDP. Uh, with me to look at all of this is Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman. Uh, Tori, what do you think? We always talk about debt as expressed as a percentage of GDP, which kind of confuses people, I think. They don't know exactly how to interpret that number. And so I, I wanted to, to take a few moments here and explain why we do that. I mean, it's literally just a ratio. Okay, it's 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 the, how much debt we have divided by you know what's what's our GDP, our current GDP. And the reason we do that and express it as a ratio is because it allows economists to compare the burden of our debt, how how sizable is it, uh, over time. Now, we all know that a dollar today is worth less than a dollar, say, 50 years ago. You know, 50 years ago, a dollar could get you quite a haul at the the local, you know, Walmart in terms of candy, gum, you know, <laughs> cigarettes or whatever it is your 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 vice is. You know, but a dollar today at Walmart, um, I, I think you maybe walk out with a half a pack of gum. So we all know that, you know, if we're looking at, you know, GDP, which is measured in dollars, if we compare the size of the economy today to the size of the economy, say, 50 years ago, you know, it, it, in terms of dollar, it's just it, uh, because, you know, the dollar value is different, it's, it's kind of hard to, to make that comparison. So we create this ratio of debt to GDP because it gets it eliminates that whole troublesome factor of a dollar today isn't worth what a dollar was a year ago and it sort of it gives us an accurate measure or more accurate way to compare at least a relative comparison of how big of a burden is our debt relative to the size of our economy today 
than say, you know, 50 years ago. And so that's when you read something like CBO's long-term budget outlook, not only are they looking at the past, but they're looking 30 years out in the future. And I think one of the, the, the stunning things about the CBO's report is, you know, despite, you know, small tinkerings around the edges, legislation, for example, that, that Congress just passed to uh, alleviate, you know, avert a debt crisis, you know, which saved a little bit of money, doesn't really move the needle at all when it comes to the path of our debt and deficits. We are still on a path right now. If nothing changes, okay, CBO's report is based on current law. So it assumes, for example, that the the Trump tax cuts and temporary portion of the Trump tax cuts in 2017, those expire in 2025. So there's this big bolus of of revenues that we get in, in 2026 under the CBO forecast here. So our current law path of spending and revenues is so bad that we literally get to a point where net interest costs, okay, how much we spend to service our debt exceeds the rest of the of the budget. I mean, things like, you know, it, our biggest line item becomes net interest on the debt. It's not Social Security. It's not Medicare. It's not funding roads and bridges. It's not putting men and women on Mars so that we can save the population. Okay. It's net interest is the biggest thing. So at that point, you know, if we're raising taxes at all to try and balance the budget, it's not that we're raising taxes to buy new things. We're raising taxes to prevent a debt crisis and becoming, you know, a, a, a banana republic. So I think that's what the, the the shocking thing to me about this is, is just how big a burden net interest becomes because, A, we've run up so much debt and we're going to run up even more unless we do something to change current law. Interest costs now are pretty high by historical standards as a percentage of, of the economy, and they're they're on track to break a record within the this decade and nearly triple as uh, uh, by the end of the you know three decades from now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, you know, there's just an uncharted territory, and you're spending so much money on interest. At that point, you're just borrowing money to pay interest uh, on the on the debt from the, de- the debt that you run up, and you think about what that does to the prospects of future generations. And we're not talking about, you know, 30 years is not that far into the future. I mean, we're not talking about, you can look back, many of us, 30 years, and uh, it doesn't seem like that long ago. (laughs) Well, and I plan on being around in 30 years from now. Thank you very much. So, uh, you know, if, you know, my health is is fine, I'll be around in 30 years. Yeah, and that's not, so that's not a future. If I'm around, damn it, leave my Social Security and Medicare alone because I'm going (laughs) to be needing it. But but anyway, um, you know, I think one of the things that we we talk about also is um, that's stunning in this report is population growth. Mm. I mean, you know, in order to have a strong economy to afford all of these things, uh, you know, you need to have a growing population. And, uh, you know, we we have a growing population, but but it's slowing. Uh, The growth is slowing considerably. And this 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 report, it it was even, uh, I guess, more pessimistic than prior reports. Workforce growth is going to slow considerably over the next 30 years if we don't do anything about it. And, you know, you just cannot have a growing economy under those circumstances. Right. No, I mean, the way, you know, an economy works is, you know, economy can only grow as fast as its workers can produce the goods and services that people are demanding. 
So that means your workforce has got to be you know, improving in terms of productivity, being able to make more with you know, the same amount of time, same tools, or your labor force has got to be growing. Okay. And, and one of the things that's been happening here in the United States for a long time, women are marrying later, they're having fewer children. And the impact there is that means our, our labor force is not growing as much. So that has a huge impact on economic growth going into the future. And we know this, this isn't some sort of pie in the sky, you know, forecast with huge projection error. We know this because the people, the workers of tomorrow, are born right now. Okay. They've been born in the last couple of years. They're being born right now. And we can count those babies. Okay. So we know in terms of the people that are born here in the United States, we know pretty well what that population is going to look like 30 years from now. And guess what? It's going to be a lot. So it's going to grow a lot slower than it has in the past. And that's going to slow. It's going to be an anchor, if you will, on, on economic growth. And so, you know, the, the 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 sort of side implication to this, at least for me, is, you know, Republicans are constantly saying we can cut taxes to grow the economy and that'll solve all of our problems. We can grow our way out of this. No. What this tells me is that Republicans can cut taxes all they want and they're not going to grow the economy. All they're going to do is grow inflation because we're going to have this huge, massive increase in demand, but we're not going to have the workers that we need to produce the goods and services that we need to satisfy that demand. So in the end, all you do is create inflation. So let's just take this whole notion of we can cut taxes and grow the economy off the table, not with this projection, not with our current labor force, not with these projections of our current labor force. We need to grow our labor force. So implication number one, it, it, like if, if I was president right now, I would be on the horn to leaders in the House and Senate saying, all right, we need to do immigration reform right now. We've got to get more people here into the United States, working here, producing goods and services so that we can grow our economy. So when the Republicans want to talk about tax cuts, you know, two, three, four, five years from now, we have got the workers in place that are trained and able and ready and willing to work to meet the demand that will come from, for example, any. Yeah, and I think the other the other intractable problem here is uh, healthcare costs. When right. you look at the uh, on the spending side, healthcare costs is definitely the major driver, and uh, a lot of that is not coming from the aging of the population. That's part of it. That's about a third of it. But the projected growth is coming from what they call additional healthcare costs or excess cost growth, or basically it's a way of describing how healthcare costs are growing faster than than the economy on a per person basis. And uh, you know, if we don't do something to get a more efficient healthcare system or figure out how to um, uh, you know slow the growth of healthcare costs, you can't do anything about the population increase. The, Medicare and Social Security are going to cost more because there are more beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, slowing the growth of, of healthcare costs is going to be really, really important uh, in order to get the budget uh, under control. Yeah. And I think the complicated factor there is that, okay, Social Security, that's an arithmetic problem. Okay. We know what we need to do there to, to solve Social Security. Um, you know, the population growth. Okay. That's also a, a pretty much a math program problem. We just, we need more workers. We can accomplish that with immigration reform. The problem with, with, with healthcare reform is that's a cultural problem. Okay. The way Americans think about their healthcare, um, uh, especially when it comes to end of life care, um, is just fundamentally expensive. 
Um, and I think that's where the challenge lies is how do we get people to think differently and act differently and think more efficiently and act more efficiently when it comes to their, their healthcare, uh, healthcare services that they demand. Um, I mean, yeah, we can talk about payments to hospitals and, and physicians, but we also need Americans to think differently about healthcare. Okay, so wrapping up this segment, the uh, the bad news is uh, and the opportunities. You shouldn't call it bad news, but the opportunities that we see coming out of this report are: we need to do immigration reform, bring in more workers. We need to do revenue reform to bring in more revenues, and we need to reform healthcare to spend less on, uh, but still maintain quality on uh, healthcare. Uh, we'll leave it there for, for nice right now. Up. You're. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. In this segment, we'll talk about border carbon adjustments with Greg Bertelson, CEO of the Bipartisan Climate Leadership Council. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Communications Director Av Harris join me for the discussion. Well, in this uh, time of bitter partisanship in Congress, it may come as a bit of a welcome surprise that there's actually a bipartisan movement on climate-related legislation, at least in the Senate. It would open the door for the first time to a carbon fee of sorts. Specifically, it would impose a fee on imported goods whose production is deemed carbon-intensive. So a kind of import tariff on goods that take a high amount of, of uh, carbon emissions to produce. It, uh, it responds to similar fees expected to be implemented this fall by the European Union on all imports, including American products. Are these border carbon adjustments the first step towards a bipartisan consensus? We'll ask Greg Bertelson of the Bipartisan Climate Council uh, his organization is probably the best known for uh, getting this border carbon adjustment uh, idea circulating uh, on the congressional agenda. Greg, Av, and Tori, welcome to Facing the Future. Thank Thanks, you. Bob. Thank you, Bob. Good to be here. Greg, it's, uh, it's fun to be talking about something other than the debt limit. Um, we've been consumed with that lately. So uh, we're talking about the climate today and, and something that isn't totally partisan. Your organization is involved with uh, border carbon adjustments, and uh, I wonder if you could explain a little bit uh, what that is and, uh, and why there is some bipartisan interest in the concept. Yes, well, thanks, Bob. Tori, Av, great to be with you today and happy to be providing you with a little relief from the debt <laughs> crisis discussion. Of course, I imagine we may veer into fiscal issues as we're talking about things like carbon pricing and, sure. and fees at the border. But Bob, to, to your question, so uh, at the simplest level or the simplest level I can make it, what we're talking about when we use a term like a border carbon adjustment is a fee assessed on goods coming into the country based on the amount of carbon pollution, the amount of greenhouse gas emissions it took to manufacture that product. This is a global issue, climate change. A ton of carbon that's emitted in New Hampshire uh, is equivalent in terms of its climate impacts as a ton that's emitted in, in China. And if we're going to address this problem, this challenge of climate change at the required scale and speed, 
we need to figure out a way not only to lower our domestic emissions, the emissions that take place in the United States, we're about 10% of global emissions. We got to figure out a way to get, have the rest of the world come along as well. And the advantage of a fee at the border is that we are leveraging the very powerful force that is the U.S. consumer, our consumption culture, and sending a price signal, a market signal to all those manufacturers who export goods to the United States to reduce their emissions. The other advantage of this type of a policy is it rewards those actors in the global economy that are operating the cleanest, that are leading in reducing their emissions. And it just so happens that among the most efficient, cleanest companies in the world are those that operate here in the United States. So we've done analysis which shows that U.S. manufacturers, on average, are about 44% more carbon efficient than the global average, meaning we can make the same goods while emitting about 44% less emissions. And so if we get the incentives right, we get those market incentives right, we're going to reward U.S. manufacturers, boost the U.S. economy, and encourage everyone else in the world to compete to lower their emissions. What uh, Could you give us some examples of what imported goods would be uh, subject to the adjustment? So the most obvious are the really heavy manufactured goods like steel and aluminum and chemicals. Those are heavily traded. They are very energy intensive and they're very carbon intensive. It takes a lot of energy to make a ton of steel and it requires a lot of carbon emissions. And so if we were to include those goods, we would capture a good percentage of global emissions. Uh, and we'd also send a fairly powerful market reward to manufacturers that are already leading the way. So using steel as an example, we're anywhere from from 50% to 300% more efficient than many of the competitors for whom we compete with domestically who are exporting steel to the United States. And if we got these incentives right, we would see U.S. capacity, U.S. steel capacity max out. So that means every steel mill in the country is operating at max capacity. And what's displaced are the most carbon intensive, highest polluting parts of the market that are importing into the United States. In Washington, people get obsessed with terminology. Uh, so if, if somebody were to call this a carbon tax, would they be wrong? Terminology are, is in the, uh, the mouth of the beholder. Is that a real expression? In the eyes of the beholder? Uh, you know, you can call it any number of things, and it has been called a number of things. That we think the most technically correct term is a carbon intensity import fee. This is a performance standard, an environmental performance standard based on the amount of carbon pollution it took to make a good. I personally am not afraid of the term carbon tax. I actually am a supporter of a carbon tax. And we may spend some time later in the program talking about why the term may sound scary, but the policy itself is actually quite sound and effective. I think your term is better. Um, but we'll see. Uh, Tori? I'd like to go back and talk a little bit about the, the goods that are, that are affected. You talk about the big polluters in the world. I naturally think of countries like India and China. Um, we import a lot of goods 
from those countries. A lot of those goods are low cost. They're the goods that you see at say, you know, Target, Walmart, you know, and and those those stores, those those big box retailers have been able to provide goods to middle low income families um and and you know allow them to furnish their homes etc and 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 have things that they otherwise would not because they're less expensive than us manufactured goods um do you see this uh imp- this carbon import uh, border adjustment fee do you see this as having an impact on the price of those of those goods and if so is there a political Aside from the whole, is this a fee? Is this a new tax? You know, are we getting Republicans crosswise of their no new tax pledge? But is there a political angle here for Democrats who might be environmentally conscious, but also very conscious about raising the cost of of retail goods for low income families who are already experiencing pain through inflation? First, it's important to assess any policy, not in isolation, but in the full picture, full suite of policies. So first, you've always got to ask the question, or we always ask the question, as opposed to what? So we know that we're going to be addressing climate through policy. We are already, as a country, implementing various various policies. And at the end of the day, you've basically got three options, three, three categories of options for, for climate policy. The first is you can do the subsidy approach. And as a country, we've leaned very heavily on this subsidy approach. Last year, I'm sure you guys have spent time talking about it. The president in the Democratic Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act, $370 billion of subsidies for clean energy uh, goods. Goldman Sachs estimates that's going to be close to a trillion dollars over 10 years, uh, but a big chunk of money for subsidies. The second approach is you can do regulations. So command and control regulations telling companies, which technologies they need to use to continue operating. Just last week, the Biden administration proposed a new set of regulations on power plants, coal-fired power plants, natural gas-fired power plants. Uh, And the third is some form of a market policy, a, a policy that somewhere or in parts of the economy puts a fee on the thing you want less of, which is carbon emissions. And then you let the market figure out where the reductions come from. The subsidy approach needs to be used in some cases, but at, at, at scale to reduce this problem comes at an enormous taxpayer cost. And you guys know this, frankly, better than me, that those costs are uh, compounded with time and there is an expense that taxpayers ultimately pay for it. The regulatory approach as well. There's a place for regulations in our economy. There's a place for regulations in the climate discussion. But those costs, too, are, are, are trickled down to consumers. Mm-hmm. The advantage of the market-based approach, it is that it's exceptionally efficient. The market figures out where the absolute lowest cost reductions come from, and that's what we're left with. So in all scenarios, there is a cost impact, but actually the pricing or a fee approach, or in this case, a border import fee, is the least cost. The second point I'd make is, what does everybody in Washington agree on right now? It's outcompeting China. That is the bipartisan issue of the day. Mm-hmm. And what's one of the outcomes that these bipartisan lawmakers, the vast majority of members of Congress want to see, 
is some form of a decoupling from China, some shift in our economy to be less reliant on China. That does not happen without cost impacts. It just doesn't. So anything we're talking about in the space of changing our supply chains, at least in the short term, comes with a cost impact. Again, the beauty of this approach is that it's highly efficient. It's based on environmental performance. Manufacturers from anywhere in the world can reduce the amount of fee they're paying at the border simply by reducing their pollution. So it's a, it's a great question, Tori. It's complex. But at the end of the day, it's why we are so supportive of these market-based approaches, because we believe in the efficiency of the market. Uh, and we believe ultimately that's what delivers the best results at the lowest cost. For the people who are listening, the first attack ad you're going to see is going to, you know, some industry is going to say, oh, this is going to raise your costs. This is going to raise your prices. You are encouraging our listeners to sit and say, okay, relative to what? If we do, if we, we know that we need to do something about climate change. If we approach this through regulation, costs are going to go up. If we approach this through, you know, federal taxation, costs are going to go up. This is a market-based approach and companies can pick and choose where they want to get their imports from based on where this fee is applied. And that is the most efficient way to reduce carbon emissions uh, and creating the least amount of pain. So when you see this attack ad, you know, go beyond, think critically, evaluate more holistically, correct? Can't say it any better than that. (laughs) I am interested in the politics of the moment because you've got several Republicans in the Senate. I think uh, you've got Bill Cassidy, you've got Lindsey Graham, a couple of others who are interested in this, in this border carbon adjustments. Um, And the Republican Party traditionally has been more of the free trade party, um, you know, break down some of those barriers and tariffs to trade. Um, Although I would say uh, the script was flipped a little bit during the Trump administration. You Um, think? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, just just a little bit. But um, so I'm wondering, you know, how you're getting Republican support for this, because some might say that this sounds a little protectionist. Yeah, another great, great question. So the really intriguing thing about this policy approach is that you can come to it purely with a climate interest. And we've seen that and find really effective policy to reduce global emissions. You didn't mention it, uh, but on the Democratic side of the aisle, Sheldon Whitehouse, who's often thought of as the biggest climate hawk in the Senate, has endorsed this sort of an approach, Senator Coons from Delaware, a number of others. Or on the other end of the spectrum, you could come to this with an interest purely in U.S. economic interests, purely in our geopolitical standing and find a policy that's going to deliver a massive benefit to the U.S. economy because of this carbon advantage, because of our efficiency advantage over the rest of the world. So that's the, that's the entry point. And it's, I guess I should say that's the entry points. And it's been different for Democrats and Republicans. And by the way, the, the senators who are working on this on both sides of the aisle, they all care about climate and they all care about the economy. They probably weight those a little differently. I would say the Republicans working on it are a little bit more focused on the economic impact. So that's sort of point one. The second thing I would note on the on the trade part of it is, to Tory's point, in thinking through this issue in, the, in, a, in a thoughtful manner, you know, a tariff, a traditional tariff is arbitrary in some ways, right? It's, a, it's an arbitrary 
in a sense, percentage on, on goods. And if you are an exporter to the country, to the U.S., you have no choice but to pay that, that tariff rate. This is an environmental performance standard, what we're talking about. This is a, 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 a fee that's, based on, that, 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 that's applied based on your environmental performance. So every manufacturer who wants to serve the U.S. market has the opportunity to pay $0 simply by reducing their emissions. So while it shares some characteristics with a traditional tariff, at the end of the day, this is performance-based and, and actually, by its nature, uh, a free market approach, right? This is capitalism. This is competition for lower pollution. So um, one more question for you, and then we probably have to uh, go to break. But a couple of technical questions, because when you institute a policy like this, I'm sure that you have to at least make a projection for how much revenue you might see coming in um, if you institute this kind of border carbon adjustment fee. And then the other question is, have you uh, looked at how much or maybe made a projection for how much you might be able to incent companies to reduce their emissions by doing something like this? It's, it's probably very difficult to calculate something like that and highly speculative, but I'm very curious if you've, if you've made projections for both of those things. Yeah, great, great question. So we've, we, we have looked at this. So let me start with the second question first. We've done an assessment of what the emission reduction potential may be. And so just to use some of our, our recent analysis, if all goods that are, were imported to the United States were matched the environmental performance of the goods that are manufactured in the United States, meaning that if the goods coming in we're at the same carbon pollution levels as the equivalent manufacturer in the United States, we would reduce U.S. emissions, uh, or I should say global emissions, by 700 million tons per year, 700 million tons per year. Part of what we are big proponents of is not just the U.S. going alone, but the United States forming partnership with other like-minded countries. So there's a discussion at the G7 right now around something that's often referred to as a carbon club, in which countries would band together and apply a similar border fee on carbon emissions around all of our, our countries. And if we form something like that, we would cut global emissions by over 2 billion tons per year, which is a substantial chunk of global emissions. Globally, we're somewhere in the neighborhood of $40 billion, I'm sorry, 40 billion tons per year. On the, on the revenue side, it's not a tremendous amount of revenue that you're raising, and it depends on the dollar amount that you're actually applying at the fee. So it's, it's you know, but we've done, we've often kicked around the idea of a 40 or $50 a ton fee, and you're in the like $1 billion to $2 billion uh, per year. Where you see a big revenue uh, number is when you start talking about a domestic carbon fee, which uh, we may explore later in the program. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Av Harris, and I are discussing border carbon adjustment legislation with Greg Bertelson, CEO of the Bipartisan Climate Leadership Council. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. 
Tori Gorman, Av Harris, and I are discussing border carbon adjustment legislation with Greg Bertelson, CEO of the Bipartisan Climate Leadership Council. Uh, Greg, when we left off, we were talking about, uh, you know, whether uh, border adjustment legislation could lead in this country could lead to a trade war or something like that. Of course, the the, uh, European Union is already a little bit ahead of us on this and implementing. Well, it's been enacted and it will be implemented uh, starting in the fall, uh, a program similar to this and although not identical. So you might want to talk about the um, the differences between what is being considered here in the U.S. and the Senate uh, legislation and what the EU is proposing. And then, um, you know, whether that poses any problems under international agreements like the World Trade uh, under the World Trade Organization from the general agreement on tariffs and trades. There might be some issues uh, there. I'm not saying that there are, but it's 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 a new thing. And so uh, there might be some litigation over that. Absolutely. And Bob, you're exactly right. The European Union is a few steps ahead of the United States in developing their own what they would refer to as a carbon border adjustment mechanism. It's intended to apply to really energy intensive manufacturers like we were talking about before, steel and aluminum, among other products. It's scheduled to go into force in 2026, but the implementing acts are starting uh, right now. And that will mean that goods from the United States and everywhere else in the world will be assessed a fee coming into European Union. And I could talk a little bit about what that might mean for manufacturers, but I think an important point to make, and one we make to lawmakers every day, is this is happening globally. And the European Union won't be the last major economy to deploy this kind of a policy. The U.S. needs to be at the lead of these discussions. We need to have our own version of what the European Union is doing. But Longer term, we need to find partnership with the EU in Japan and South Korea and Canada. And there's partnership to be had. We've got to work through some differences, but on the highest of levels, our objectives are very similar. We all want to address global climate change. We all want a policy approach that provides a level playing field for our manufacturers and gives us the opportunity to compete fairly in the global economy. In terms of the differences between the CBAM and the EU and the US, well, the US is still developing what we're going to promote. We talked earlier about the Republican senators who are exploring policy, the Democratic senators who are exploring policy. And while they are aligned in their longer term objectives of having a climate policy that benefits US manufacturers, there are still key policy differences between where those senators are. So it remains to be seen exactly the approach the U.S. is going to be taking, but there is building momentum in the U.S. to do something, and that's very positive. In terms of the World Trade Organization, so for listeners who are not familiar, the World Trade Organization is a global body of which the United States is a member that's intended to be the referee around trade. And there are very complex rules and requirements on what countries can and cannot do, uh, largely designed to prevent being overly protectionist in your policies. 
So first point to make is in this suite of policies, it is totally untested. So we don't know how WTO, how the, how the, how the um, judicial body within it would respond to these types of proposals. We also know that WTO as a body is evolving. When it was drafted, it didn't specifically uh, address climate change, although it is very clear that countries are at liberty to enact trade policies that are designed to protect the environment. And that's exactly what these policies are intended to do. Further, we're big proponents of market-based approaches, one that allow for competition, that promote competition. And so if the end of what the U.S. policy process is uh, results in something that is environmental first in terms of its objectives and is promoting fair competition across the board, then I think we'll find ourselves in very firm footing when it comes to WTO. Av, how do we measure the carbon intensity of this kind of manufacturing production? Are there standards we can all agree to? And who gets to decide that? There is a tremendous amount of data already out there that is largely accepted and agreed upon, and we need orders of magnitude more data. Uh, so the important thing to point out is that we have enough to get started. We have an adequate enough sense of the global emissions picture, which industries and which countries are emitting and how much. And the way you start is U.S. policymakers drafting rules for our policy and then U.S. Uh, officials administering the program. This will start with, in some cases, actual real facility level data. And in other cases, it will be based on estimates using very effective and accurate proxies for what emissions might be. And then with time, as reporting improves, the data will become more and more precise right down to the product level. When we implement this, we as a country, as the implementing country, will tell exporters to the United States what their carbon emissions were effectively. We'll take the publicly available information and we will tell them this is what your charge is. And if you don't agree with us, you can submit alternate information based on your facility level data, allow it to be verifiable, make sure that it's credible, and we'll use that number instead. So you start with kind of your best available data and estimates, which we will apply at our border. And then every exporter to the United States has the ability to show us that their actual performance was different. So I think this is a neat idea. And I'd, I'd really like to understand sort of the, the political opportunities that exist for this. So as you said in one of your opening statements, uh, the Congress passed you know, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, in 2022. It had a host of new uh, uh, tax provisions in there. Is this type of, of, of border uh, adjustment uh, carbon fee, is this something that the federal government can implement under the authorities that were passed in the Inflation Reduction Act? Or is this something that has to pass as entirely new legislation? So it has to go through the House and the Senate, be signed by the president. 
And if it does have to be entirely new legislation, what is your projection, your outlook for when might we see something like this? It's obviously too soon for something like the debt limit legislation to carry this as a, as a rider, you know, but do you see this as something that, that President Biden can accomplish before the end of his first term? Or is this something that's still a couple of years away? The executive branch, the Biden administration, likely has some authority to get started in this arena. In fact, they are right now negotiating a bilateral trade deal with the European Union, just taking two products, aluminum and steel. So just a two-country deal, working on carbon intensity, uh, import fees. And so they certainly believe they've got the authority as uh, uh, with existing legislation. At the end of the day, this is something Congress needs to weigh in on. We need to have bipartisan legislation. And Tory, we need to go old school. We need to go back to going, working in this through committee processes, having hearings, having experts come and inform lawmakers, having amendments, bringing this to the floor in regular order and all of that. And I think we'll get there. We know that there is a growing uh, amount of interest among the electorate to address climate change. We know there is a growing amount of uh, concern among the electorate to ensure that the United States remains competitive, particularly our manufacturing base. We know that there's a growing concern about some of our geopolitical rivals. And this policy uniquely serves all of those interests. And you just look at who's already involved in the early days. You've got a conservative Republican senator from North Dakota and Senator Kramer, conservative Republicans like Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy. And then you've got on the Democratic side, folks like Senator Whitehouse and, and Coons. And so if that if it can already unite that diverse of representatives representing diverse states, uh -huh. a lot of different economic interests, I see this as probably the only uh, major climate policy, at least in the near term, um, that can get the kind of bipartisan support to get back to passing big legislation the right way. You have many other things on your uh, on your climate agenda, but I wanted to see if if we could give you a, a couple of minutes to talk about some of the other pillars of your bipartisan uh, climate roadmap, because I think Tori's correct. There is an interesting moment um, happening right now uh, with climate and uh, a recognition, I would say, um, by uh, a lot of Republicans that this is this is real, this is happening, and and we need to do something. And I think that is a major shift. Um, that's like a generational shift politically. So what are some of the things um, in your bipartisan uh, climate roadmap that you want Congress to focus on too? If we're going to have a serious discussion about how we're going to decarbonize our domestic economy, while not exacerbating other issues like, oh, I don't know, the federal deficit, we need to start thinking about how we can do something like a carbon fee domestically. So the approach that we've long been advocates for is called a carbon dividends policy. And in short, what it would do is instead of applying that carbon fee on goods coming into the country, it would apply to fossil fuels when they enter the economy. There actually aren't that many points in which that takes place. It's like one or 2000 points in the economy. But because our everything we do runs on energy, the price signal of that fee trickles through the entire economy. So every economic decision in the economy is at least slightly informed by 
which option emits less carbon. Most of this to the consumer is imperceivable or, or fairly insignificant, but at the big decision points of the economy, like if you're a utility and you're deciding which power plant to build, coal or natural gas or nuclear or renewables, or which power plant to run among those fuels, you're going to trend towards the, the cleaner option. And that's why nearly every economist in the world who has looked at this issue has agreed that a fee on carbon is the most economically efficient way to go about it. There are things you can do with the revenue to more than offset the cost to consumers. There are things you can do with the revenue if you wanted to, to help get at some of our fiscal issues as well. Um, it's the right way to go. We'll get there eventually. Yeah, we don't often uh, end a segment on an optimistic note around here, but uh, <laughs> but uh, thanks for that. Uh, and I hope you're right. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Av Harris, and I have been discussing the border carbon adjustment uh, concept with Greg Bertelson, CEO of the Bipartisan Climate Leadership Council. That's all the time we have for this week. If you missed any of today's program, visit our website, ConcordCoalition.org, to hear the whole show. And join us again next week for another episode of Facing the Future. 